The words of the teacher. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vapor. What do people gain from all the toil at which they exasperate under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. All things are wearisome. More than one can express, the eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is nothing new under the sun. The Book of Ecclesiastes, Chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. Welcome to the Becoming Human podcast, where we explore the world to better live in it. On this episode, we are going to look at our relationship to change, and of course, we need to ask the question, where do music babies come from? We've been talking about tradition versus progress and this existential dance of roots and growth. And I've made the argument that change is inevitable. We've talked about vision and reformation and creativity, but even when we move into uncharted territory, even when change happens, we have to adapt, even with progress, is anything actually new? Now, to be transparent, this is a confrontation about the idealistic hope of the future, this thinking that can um, you know, occasionally crop up amongst adamant proponents of change and progress where we say, look at this new thing, this will solve our problems. Or even when we just celebrate the newness of something, which is typically a way to flip the proverbial middle finger to the past. So philosophically speaking, can anything actually be new? That's what we're gonna get into with guest visits by compost, boats, the molecular composition of humans, and a little known musician named Arnold Schoenberg. Because, my friends, we have reached the age of maturity where we should probably have a conversation about where music babies come from. Let's begin with boats. In fact, I want to know where you stand when it comes to the penultimate ethical debate on rebuilding boats. What's your take? And some of you may know where this is going. So let's say you have a boat, at least let's pretend you have a boat, and you use your boat to cross a body of water every single day. Very, very handy if you live near a body of water. Years pass, and some parts of the boat are weathering, so you replace it. Great work, boat still floats. More time passes. You keep making repairs and replacements, and after many years, you have done so many repairs that you have actually replaced every component on the boat. So here's the question. Is it still the same boat? This is actually called Theseus's paradox, um, and it was proposed a very long time ago as a way to think about newness and change. And the real issue here deals with the material world and especially the existence of human beings in it. So consider, for example, You are made up of tiny building blocks of matter called atoms, which are mostly empty space, 99% in fact. 
And those are made up of even smaller building blocks. And you've got some 7 billion billion of these atoms, which if you took and smashed all those atoms together would still be approximately the size of a sugar cube. Awesome. But these atoms that compose you haven't always composed you. In fact, these atoms previously composed other things and people. And they will go on to form even more things and people. Atomically, you are constantly changing. Now, this is most obvious in the fact that your skin sheds. About every month, your skin is a completely new set of skin. Every seven years, you've changed atomically so much that your body is physically different. Over 300 million cells die every minute. That's what's going on. So, are you the same person? But beyond, beyond the physical, you know, yes, you don't wear the same clothes you did when you were two. Or maybe you do, and we'll just call you eccentric. But you probably don't think the same. You don't see the same. You don't know the same things. Your relationships are not the same. Your history is not the same. Your memory is not the same. The world around you is not the same. So is it new? Is it actually a completely different thing? That's the question about the boat. How much has to change before it is a new boat? Is the composition of the boat just quantitative and physical? Does the history of the boat or the use of the boat or the perspective with the boat, does that play a role in defining the existence of the boat? You know, is identity just material or, or is it also mental? Does it deal with qualitative things like perspective and thinking, or is it just quantitative things like physicality and composition? And, and then keep going. If only 99% of the boat was changed with repairs, would that mean that it's still the same? You know, are you the same person at 50 years old as you were as an infant? It, it's all just an interesting thought experiment, and it's an unanswerable question. Many philosophers have tried, you know, you got Heraclitus, Plato, Aristotle, all the way to John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, but it's really just a decision you have to make. Or, or more realistically, it's, it's something you just have to think about. At what point is the boat a new boat? If A becomes B and B becomes C, is C still related to A? For us, we have this issue where movement and change are permanently inevitable, but the past is still there and is still somehow part of the current context. There is this qualitative sameness, but how much has to be the same, quantitatively or qualitatively, for it to be the same? When can we say something is new? Is it even possible for something to be new? To help us think about this, I want to turn to the composer and musician Arnold Schoenberg and talk about how music babies are made. Schoenberg was one of the first composers to utilize what was considered a groundbreaking concept in music theory, and it's called atonality. He lived during a time, uh, you know, when classical music as we know it today, when that dominated the totality of what was being produced and performed, it was like the late Romantic period. And this is what Schoenberg grew up in. In fact, Schoenberg was classically trained and, and even composed a lot of music that resounded with the style of all those predecessors. And then Schoenberg did something different. 
So most Western music contains a musical range with 12 notes. And when you group particular notes together, they create a pleasant sound. These are usually called keys. Most music we listen to, even today, works with notes that belong to a particular key and, therefore, sound right to our ears. Schoenberg offered a vast departure from this norm. He decided to compose music that uses all 12 notes at the same time. You've, you've probably heard a very rudimentary version of this if you've ever heard someone learning to play the piano. You know, they're going along, hitting one note at a time, physically straining to find the next right button to press, and then they miss, they hit B flat instead of A, completely breaks the vibe. This is discordance. It's that dissonant sound. Now, some music will work in discordant notes every now and then, but our ears have been trained, or, or maybe you'd argue it's natural for us to, to hear a consonant sound to balance out the dissonance. When a discordant note is used, you know, we kind of wait for that discordance to get resolved. When Schoenberg started using all 12 notes, he was writing music that was intentionally discordant. He actually promoted the dissonance and, and all those unresolved sounds that our ears want to hear. He made that the point of the music. I've done something before where you know, I'd be in front of a group of people and I would, I would introduce a piece of music, orchestral music, and we're going to listen to this together. And I pull up a video, and you could see the conductor in a beautiful room with a full orchestra ready to perform. And then the music starts, and it's Arnold Schoenberg. Just go look up Schoenberg's five orchestral pieces. And I watch the crowd as I'm doing this, and people just start to cringe. Like their eyebrows change shape, they start looking around the room wondering if like something has gone terribly wrong. Because Schoenberg was rejecting the traditional harmonies and doing something quite different that doesn't necessarily fit the palette of most people. And this is called atonality, or sometimes it's called 12-tone music. And, and it isn't all that unexpected today, but in the 19th and 20th centuries, it wasn't necessarily embraced immediately. We'll just say that. Today, uh, especially in cinema, we actually hear this a bit more. And it's still off-putting for many listeners, and, and that's why it's often used in like scary scenes or when there's this heightened intensity building. And when Schoenberg started doing this, some critics lauded him for his innovation. Others dismissed him as a heretic, and that all kind of happened at the same time. It's like there are two kinds of responses to atonality. You either cringe and turn it off because it's so disorienting, or you, you glimmer with eccentric approval. And there were certainly the critics who said that Schoenberg was groundbreaking. But here's the question. Was atonality new? Or another question, where did atonality come from? How did it happen? Ergo, music babies. Because it's easy to assume that Arnold Schoenberg was doing a new revolutionary thing. You know, rejecting the past to innovate something unfounded but did atonality come out of nowhere? Do music babies get delivered by a stork? Well, no. In order for Arnold Schoenberg to break the rules of musical norms, he first had to know what those rules were. What Schoenberg did 
was adapted the concept of music to a different form than what was conventionally considered. Which brings us back to the boat. How different does something have to be in order for it to be new? If Schoenberg only used 11 notes together at a time instead of all 12, would it have been declared innovative? How, how much dissimilarity would there have to be in order for it to actually be something new? Where do we draw the line? If it still uses notes, is it still music? Is it all that new if the performers still use instruments? How far does it have to go for it to be groundbreaking or new? The point I'm trying to make is that everything Schoenberg did was still based on a very long continuum of all the music that came before him. Atonality was different, but I don't know that it was a new thing. In fact, I wonder if, if we stretch the newness far enough, is the only way to do something new is to the point that it wouldn't actually be music anymore? And, and this is the same with any apparently new genre of music, whether it's 80s synthesizers or EDM. They are all based on, and, and quite possibly dependent on, the genres of music that came before them. Alright, so what does this have to do with tradition and progress and the sociological landscape of us having a proper sense of proportion in an ever-changing world that's still connected to the past? Well, my claim is that the author of Ecclesiastes was right. There is no such thing as new. And I partly say this because something new is not random. Whatever's being described as new is based on a progression that has led to that thing's existence. The, the next thing is simply a response to the current thing. It works with the reality it has and it adapts it, like, like looking at a plant sprouting up from the ground. It looks new and it might be physically or quantitatively new, but it's just the natural continuation of the roots that have been there the whole time. Even the quantitative components are based on something that came before it, and the qualitative nature looks like it's continuing something else. Even if you went past the roots and you said, well, <clears throat> what if the roots are new? You know, it's a new plant. Okay, interesting thing about the existence of plants. They grow from a thing called soil, or water full of various nutrients and minerals and elements if you're into the whole hydroponics thing. And that soil and nutrients comes from where? A plant dies, it decomposes, and it rots, becoming soil or nutrients or minerals, etc. So the plant that died, that's, that's finished, right? It's done. It's old. Well, no. The plant is still kind of there. It doesn't look the same, might not have the same quantitative descriptors, but the identity, and at least the qualitative composition, despite tremendous change, that is still present which means that the following growing season, any new plants will come from the decomposition of old plants. Its fingerprints are embedded on what comes from it. New plants are literally grown through that which came before them, and anyone with gardening experience will tell you that new plants grow best when rooted in the soil of that continued strain. Planting without the depth and the history of the soil and nutrients, it's a recipe for failure. You know, Trying to hold on to the now decomposed plants too, that's a stagnant act in the impossible. See, whether it is the, the boat thought experiment or atonality, 
this process that we've been exploring, it actually has some credibility. Or think of it this way. The very use of the word new implies that there is a reference point that we would now describe as old, that the new thing is based on. New is simply the continuation of what came before it. A new human being, for example. Well, yeah, that is a new person that has not yet existed. New bones, organs, and ideas, and feelings. But, and this is a family-friendly show, and I, I don't want to have the conversation of how babies are made, but a new human being exists only as the extension of the human beings that brought forth their life. It's the same with music babies, and I think it's the same with anything that is supposedly new. Everything is a continuation of what came before. Even the person, even the plant, even the strange, eccentric, haunting music of atonality. Which means the boat that has been rebuilt over time, yeah, that might be composed of different and new materials. But it is a continuation, and qualitatively, it is still kind of the same boat. This seems to be a general reality, and we can make the same claims about your identity or culture or technology amidst all the changes and development in our society and world. There doesn't seem to be anything new under the sun. Okay, so this kind of sounds like the same old philosophical rubbish. Great, we're talking about things with no practical purpose again. But... Since episode one, I, I was very clear that I am a practical philosopher, though the philosopher title is still up for debate. Philosophy and ethics, theory and practice, they are dance partners in my opinion. And with this whole perspective on identity and change and continuation and new versus old, I think it is equally important. For me, at least when I sit with this notion that nothing is new, it allows me to be more aware of my proportion to history. It's just this acknowledgement that the world doesn't begin and end with me. See, I think a lot of arguments, a lot of the angst in our social conversations and a lot of the miscues and the daily events and interactions comes from this sort of primal reaction to function egocentrically. We sort of see ourselves as the center of the universe. We're the primary character. And when you have a very short-sighted view of life and history, we might actually believe that we are. But it's almost a relief to see that we're just another human being. Yeah, we can only see the world through our eyes. We can only understand the world through our own perception. This is the whole phenomenology thing. But we might be living with this constant anxiety of a very small world to the point that we feel like we need to carry it only because we're not actually seeing the totality of everything. Seeing existence as this long strand of which we are but a small part kind of puts us in our proper place. You aren't starting anything. You're just continuing the narrative. Which means on the other hand then, you are continuing something. So I try to begin with this proper sense of proportion of my actual place in the grand unfolding narrative and that kind of takes the edge off. But then there is also this responsibility. You have a role to play in the story of how this will continue. You're not starting it, but you are affecting it. It's not dependent on you. You're just carrying it for a time. But how you carry it will set the scene for how it will be carried by others. 
being alive in the world is this enormous collaboration project with all of existence. Seeing all of history and humanity as this extraordinary team, that's a helpful sentiment to keep in mind within your finite existence. But don't forget, you're also on the team. Your role is to contribute to how it will endure. You're going to add your piece. I think most humans, in the face of their inevitable death, you know, we wish for some kind of legacy. And when we think of legacy, we want to be remembered and honored for ages to come. We, we want the whole team of history to, to point to our image as the unmatched leader and forebear. But 99% of those alive and those to come, they will not know you. You'll probably be quite average in the grand scheme of existence. But you will add something. Everyone will leave a legacy. There will be marks left in the continuation of time from the decisions you make. You have to decide what those marks are that you will add. So, you are merely continuing something. You also have a role of participating in that continuation. Those are the main responses, I think, the, the primary perspectives that result from this idea. But there's one more. And this starts setting up where I want to go next time. If nothing is new, then whatever has been is still useful. If you are continuing something because nothing is actually new, you might want to know what you are continuing. And I've been emphasizing this over the last few episodes. The past is the only data set that is known. That's all we have. If we also make the case that whatever we are doing in the present is a direct continuation, the past is no longer just random information. It's essential documentation of what we are still a part of. That's where my mind goes, at least, when I consider this question of newness. We have an invitation to trade in egocentrism and myopia for collaboration and see that we are impacting how the story will continue based on how we use the known past for the unfolding present and the possible future. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.